morning, uh, we're going to be in our second to last lesson on storyline, and we're going to talk about the resurrection this morning. Paul makes a really interesting statement in 1 Corinthians 15, and it will be on the screen. He says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, I think most Christians who've been in church for any amount of time, they probably could point you to a passage or two that points forward to the death of Christ. I don't know about you, but I've often found myself struggling to understand why Paul could say that Jesus rose according to the scriptures. Not because I don't believe that. We'll get to that in a minute. But because I don't know if it's as obvious as the death of the servant of God as Isaiah 53 is, this idea of the Messiah dying and rising from the dead. If you think I'm off on that, just think about the disciples. When they heard Jesus say he was going to die, they were so caught off guard by that that Peter rebuked him because, number one, he didn't understand that the Messiah would die, and number two, he didn't believe that he would raise from the dead. He didn't really see that as something that was in the plans of God. Are, you, are we on the same page this morning? All right, I got four heads. Very good. Some of you look like you could use a, a sweet tart or something. And so if I were to ask you, where in the Old Testament would you go to show somebody that Jesus had to rise from the dead? Where would you go? Where would you go? Yep, there's a good psalm, right? It's one of the most quoted verses of scripture. That's about all I've got, Miss Gladys, to be honest. Before I studied for this lesson, the Lord said to my Lord, right? Sit on my right hand till I make all my enemies your footstool. But this is actually a really common objection for people who are Jewish. They, they, they think Jesus is the Messiah, number one, because dying and rising from the dead wasn't in the cards for the Messiah. So that's why they reject that. They certainly don't believe the resurrection is true, first of all. But they don't necessarily think the Old Testament points us to that. And, and so I want to show you this morning not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but why he had to rise from the dead. Why that's pivotal. Why if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead... Even just thinking about Old Testament, he could not have been the Messiah. But I don't just want to fill your head with biblical knowledge. Along the way, I want to point you to the relevance of the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul said that if we got rid of the resurrection doctrine, there would be no point in Christianity. And yet some of us, we pigeonhole resurrection to like a specific point of why we believe Jesus can save us, but we don't necessarily think in terms of the resurrection affecting our daily lives, do we? We don't necessarily remember that that moment of Jesus's resurrection has profound application to your everyday life. And so as we go through this, I want to show you in these Old Testament passages and apply the resurrection to your life, to my life, to help us see that in, in some of the darkest times of life, if you remember the resurrection, it will encourage you. It will help you see life through the lens of Christ. What I want you to see 
to start off the lesson, this isn't even on your handout, but that God identifies himself as a God of resurrection in the Old Testament. The verse I'm about to read to you is quoted at least twice in the further verses we'll see. And God identifies himself to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land in this way. He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, and what's the next part? I make alive. That sounds like resurrection to me, doesn't it? I kill, well, we saw that in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, don't we? God killed. God is the judge, but God is also a resurrecting God. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Now, before we get into the specifics of this, this will help you read your Bibles, okay? In a Hebrew mindset, it's a little different than how you and I view death. Okay, if I say someone is dead, you would think instantly that person is dead. Heart stopped, no breathing, no circulation, dead, right? Pronounced dead. That's how us English folk think of the word death. Hebrew folk used death as a metaphor for much broader things. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that they use death as a metaphor for life as, it, as we know it ending. They're going to use death as a metaphor for not being able to continue on life when they talk about someone who's infertile. Their womb is barren. Uh, they're going to talk about death in that way. They're going to talk about death as, as though they equate death with almost dying. See, you and I think there's a difference between almost dying and death. In the Hebrew language, they would use death as a metaphor for incredible suffering that maybe should have led to death. And so the reason sometimes we don't see the resurrection of the Old Testament is because we view death through a 21st century English speaker lens and not through a Hebrew speaking person's lens. And I want, to see, I want you to see this in the Bible. I'm not just making this up. I want you to see how the resurrection shows up in the Old Testament. Now, I know some of you, your handout starts with one and some of it starts out with seven. That's because I forgot that word doesn't always do what I want it to do when I'm word processing, okay? It's same handout. But here's where we see resurrection. Number one, we see it in Jesus or in God's promise to conquer the serpent who helped bring death into the world, right? We saw this, that with sin, the main consequence for sin that God promised was death. But it's immediately after death enters the world and sin enters the world that God promises to conquer, to crush the head of the serpent who was instrumental in bringing that death into the world. And so it brings to us from the very outset of the Bible an expectation that all of the curses that are named in Genesis 3, God somehow through a deliverer is going to not only defeat Satan or his seed, but he's going to roll back the effects of the curses, right? And death is including one of those. But then as you read Genesis, I've, I've pointed this out to you, right? God says that it would be the seed of who that would crush the serpent's head? The descendant of who? Adam and Eve. Interestingly, Adam, the, the reason it's significant that we remember it's the seed of Eve is because it would ultimately be one that was not born of a man who would crush the head. 
It was to Eve that he said it would be the, your descendant, your seed that would crush this serpent's head. And so Genesis traces this idea of seed and descendants. That's why in Genesis 5, there's a genealogy. In Genesis 10, there's a genealogy. And every major block of Genesis, if you're reading through Genesis in your Bible, is going to be marked off by a genealogy, the stuff that we think is really boring. Why? Because God is tracing the story, who is that seed and who is not that seed? Who is the seed of the woman and who is the seed of the serpent? But then there's also this interesting theme in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but have you ever asked yourself, why is the Old Testament so focused on women dealing with infertility? Have you ever thought that? Like every patriarch dealt with that. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, couldn't bear children. They didn't have one until Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100, right? We read about how Rachel, uh, or sorry, Rebecca was barren in Genesis 25, 21. And then they had a child. And Jacob's wife, Rachel, was also barren in Genesis 29, 31. In Judges, we have Samson's mother who is barren and cannot have children. And then in the book of 1 Samuel, we have Samuel's mother, Hannah, who is dealing with infertility. What's the significance of this? The significance in the mind of an Old Testament person is that infertility was a sort of death in itself. To not be able to have children meant the end of your life and your legacy. To, to not be able to have children, they would literally label someone who couldn't have children as having a dead womb. We'll talk about that in a minute from Hebrews. It meant that your property, for instance, could not be passed down because you did not have a descendant to pass on to it. It meant that you didn't have a secure means of being cared for in your old age. There was no Social Security. There was no Medicare. Your retirement plan in Old Testament culture was your children, right? Hey, those who are children and parents, we ought to remember that, that we don't get a pass just because Social Security and Medicare exist. God has put that responsibility on us for our parents, and so what we understand is that, number two, the bringing of life from dead wombs gives us reason to expect that God can overcome the impossible. If you were dealing with infertility as a couple or as a, as a mother, it meant the end of life as you know it. It meant your legacy was as good as dead. I love Hebrews 11, 12, which I did not put in my slideshow, so I'm going to look it up for you. Hebrews 11, 12 it shows us that I'm not just making this up and I'm not just trying to work around and use the language in a fancy way, that the Bible actually sees this as a resurrection. It says in Hebrews 11:12, 12, therefore there sprang there even of one and him as good as dead. Talking about Abraham, as so many as the stars of the sky in multitude. So it says that this guy, Abraham, was as good as dead. His wife, Sarah, her womb was as good as dead. And she had strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promise. 
1 Samuel 2 also talks about this promise of bearing a child and Hannah is going to quote the very verse in Deuteronomy that we just read in 1 Samuel 2, 5 through 6. 1 Samuel starts out with a song. Hannah is given a child and she writes a song to God and she says this, that they that were full have hired themselves out for bread and they that were hungry ceased so that the barren hath borne seven and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. And listen to what she says in verse six. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Here's Hannah, this woman. And when she is reading Deuteronomy 32 for herself, she is looking at Deuteronomy 32, that God kills and he makes alive. And she's saying, that's exactly who he is in my life because he could bring a child from my dead womb. And all of these point forward to a greater miracle of conception, the conception of a young virgin woman named Mary. And I love Luke chapter one, because Luke chapter one tells us how to think about this miracle of conception and pointing forward to the resurrection. That in Luke one, the angel tells Mary, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Nothing shall be impossible. So what does the resurrection of Jesus and what do these birth stories teach us other than the fact that Jesus secures eternal life for us, they show us, Christians, that God is capable of doing the impossible. Are, are we stirred by that this morning? I think there might be some dead spiritual hearts that need to be stirred alive to joy in life this morning because God does the impossible. If he can bring a child from a virgin woman, from a dead womb, a, a man who is dead out of a grave. God can do anything else. When God has a plan, his plans only include possibilities. But here's our problem. We assess things so much through the line of human reasoning, don't we? We've got it figured out. The more you get through life, the more reasoning you've acquired, the more experience you have, and you've got it all figured out what is possible, what is probable, and what is unlikely. But God reminds us that he is the God, not just of the unlikely, he's the God of the impossible. And friends, I've, I've seen Christians that are so rational, it's as if they don't believe the resurrection themselves. That they're so prone to discount what seems impossible as if they don't have a God who specializes in resurrecting dead things. Friend, when you find yourself staring at an impossible situation, I can't guarantee you God will always do what you think he should do. It, it, the angel doesn't say, for with God, all the things you wish were possible will, be, will happen. But he says, with God, nothing is impossible. I mean, as Christians, we have this fundamental hope that God is capable of anything. God is capable of anything. And it's that hope that should sustain us in our darkest moments. I've seen God do this in particularly this area of conception. Uh, one of my dearest friends, Tyler Prater, you've met him, he's preached for us. His, him and his wife were told that it would be impossible for them to have children. Seven years. And what did God do? He brought a child. I, I, I watched as my friend Corey, who pastors a church on the east side of Kansas, 
He and his wife, Sierra, I think were unable to have children for 13 years. That's a long time. And God brought them a child against all odds. Against all odds. God can do the impossible. Where else do we see resurrection in the Bible? We see resurrection expectations gave Abraham the hope that his promised son would not stay dead. We all know the the story of Isaac's sacrifice, don't we? What does God call Abraham to do? Well, first of all, he tells Abraham that, that the promises that he's given Abraham is that he would have a lot of children, a lot of grandchildren. And it seems like at the very end of his life, I mean, he's roughly, what, 120 by this account? He's really, really old, and he's got one. And then God says, I want you to to go, and I want you to sacrifice that one to me. And and you and I, if we read that, we certainly ought to understand that this feels like, on a human level, a really gruesome request. Something that maybe more represents the pagan gods that Abraham left. And so Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah, which is pointing forward to the future location of the temple, to offer him as a burnt offering. A burnt offering, by the way, is an animal that you would kill and you would burn the entire thing to ashes. That's a burnt offering. That's what God calls Abraham to do with his son. But notice what Abraham says to his employees before he leaves camp that day. He says to his young man, abide you here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder a worship and come again to you. Now, there's only a couple ways for us to read that. Either Abraham went up to the mountain not intending to sacrifice his son, and if you read the story, you know he was intending to sacrifice his son. We read that thinking that he knew God would provide a ram, and if you read the story, I don't think that's exactly what he was expecting, Or we understand that when Abraham says this, he is recognizing that God is who he says he was in Deuteronomy 32, 39, that he is the God who can kill and make alive. And it is that resurrection that continues God's promises for Abraham. And so what we see in the story of Abraham and Isaac is we know that God is faithful to his promises and the resurrection proves that God is faithful to his promises. That that Abraham doesn't see death as the end of life. He sees that there's a possibility for God to use resurrection as a means to fulfill his promises. Interestingly, I don't even have this in your notes, but another idea of resurrection in the Bible is that Abraham and his descendants are obsessed with being buried where? Where did they insist on being buried? Even when Jacob was carried off to Egypt, where'd they want their bones taken? to the promised land. Don't bury me in Egypt. Now, why on earth did they do that? Because the New Testament tells us that they say, well, we may not have what God promised us now, but we believe God will resurrect us someday and we will inherit the promises that he has given us. See, friend, resurrection is the means by which God is faithful to his promise. It reminds us that God will always fulfill his promises. In Isaac's story of sacrifice of a promised son who is promised resurrection reminds us of some other resurrection stories that happen in the Bible. Isaac was not bodily resurrected that day, but the Old Testament records three other sons or men who were bodily resurrected. 
Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead. In 1 Kings 17, Elisha raised the Shunammite's son from the dead. And Elisha's bones touched a dead man and raised his body from the dead. And so here, this resurrection is the hope of obtaining God's promises. We see also in the Old Testament that redemption from captivity points us to our resurrection hope. I told you that in the Old Testament, death is seen as the end of life as we know it. And what else could remind us that life as we know it is over other than being enslaved to a foreign nation? I mean, that's the end of life as we know it, right? And we see that God promises new life again and again and again to his people in bondage. In fact, most of the resurrection wording passages in the prophets have something to do with captivity to Babylon. How can we say this? Well, listen to what the Israelites say as the Egyptians are about to capture them and bring them back into slavery. And the Egyptians were urging upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. And they said, we be all dead men. The original exodus from Egypt is used as an illustration all throughout the Old Testament of God's ability to save his people from anything, even from certain death. And as they're in captivity, future enemies like Babylon, it's no wonder that we see in the prophets more resurrection language. I love Hosea 6, one of the clearest resurrection prophecies that is applied to all of God's people. It says, come and let us return to the Lord for he hath torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. And I love the verse number three, or sorry, verse number two. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live by his sight. Does that remind you of someone else who was resurrected on the third day? Here we go. We see that God is promising his people a resurrection promise that is applied immediately to their ability to come out of captivity and come back into the land. But we know as New Testament Christians that God was on a bigger trajectory than that. He was on a trajectory to bring physical resurrection to all of his people through the resurrection of Christ. We all probably are familiar with the famous prophecy of the dead bones, the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, right? That's a passage on resurrection. Ezekiel 37, 11 through 12 says, and then he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. You ever felt that way? Bones are dry and our hope is lost. And we are cut off for our parts. And what what does God say? Therefore, prophesy. And say to them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Again, here is God's prophet saying, I'm gonna take you out of Babylon and bring you into the land But we know, as we've been studying our series, that the land of Israel is pointing us to a heavenly inheritance. And so here God is saying that he is a God who will bring people out of the grave in the earth and return them to that heavenly inheritance that he has promised to them. 
What does resurrection tell us? Resurrection is God's way of rescuing us from bondage to our true enemies. Who are our enemies in this life? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but who? Principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And resurrection shows us that God rescues us from slavery to those true enemies. Who are our enemies? Sin and death and the devil himself. The resurrection of Jesus is the moment that the New Testament authors point us to to remind us that we are no longer supposed to be in bondage to the old enemy. Is it any surprise then that when Paul is writing in Romans 6 and he tells us that we don't have to be servants or slaves to sin anymore, that what truth does he point us to to remind us that we don't have to serve sin? To the resurrection of Christ as pictured in baptism. He says, when Christ resurrected, he released your chains from that old master. And the only reason you serve that old master now is by choice, not by force. Because Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he broke those chains. Here's the reality. What does the resurrection have to do with you on Monday? The resurrection tells you that you don't have to serve sin anymore. You serve sin as a Christian who believes in a God who raises his son from the dead. You're only serving sin because you want to, not because you have to. In some way, God desires for our life in this earth to picture that resurrection. If you therefore be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, right? Where else do we see resurrection in the Old Testament? We see it in recovery from deathly illness. <clears throat> Again, why the obsession in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Leprosy. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I don't know if there's a disease named more in the Bible than leprosy. We don't see any leprosy today, hardly. But if you're in the Bible at all, for any length of time, you come across leprosy. Why? Why? Why would leprosy be such a big deal in the Bible? Well, because if you had leprosy, you were as good as dead. You were as good as dead. I, I don't know if you remember this, but in our lesson on the temple and the tabernacle, the law gave this picture that when lepers uh, were found out that they had that disease, where were they placed? Outside the camp. Do you remember what the outside of the camp pictured? It was the realm of the what? The dead. You dispose dead bodies outside the camp, and here they are setting up lepers' colonies outside the camp. Why? Because if you were a leper, you were as good as dead. So quite literally, if someone recovered from leprosy, the law shows us that the only way that they could be brought back in the camp is, number one, they had to be healed. Don't know how that was going to happen. You'll see that. That was, the, that was the expectation of people. They're like, I don't know how this guy's going to get better. But even if they did, the law made provision that they could come back. And how could they come back from death to life? 
from outside the camp to inside the camp. They could come back by receiving the anointing of a priest and being covered by the blood of a sacrifice. In fact, the only two people who received that same rite of ordination were priests and lepers. Meaning that without resurrection, we cannot come closer to God. And then there's this really clear story about leprosy in the Old Testament. It's this guy named Naaman. Remember Naaman? He's a respected foreign general and he got leprosy. And he comes to the king of Israel. He's sent there through some different channels and word of mouth and things like that. He's sent to the king of Israel. And he goes to the king of Israel and says, hey, help me out with my leprosy. People tell me I should go to you. And you know what the king of Israel says? Ironically, he quotes Deuteronomy 32. And here's what he says. It came to pass when the king of Israel read the letter that he rents his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? He said, I need resurrection power to recover this man of a leprosy. And he thinks Naaman's tricking him or something, messing with him. And what's ironic is here's a guy who believes that God is a God of resurrection and he doesn't think for one moment to send Naaman to a man of God to fix his deathly illness. We see that curing people from leprosy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament points us forward to the resurrection of Christ. Why is Jesus healing lepers in the gospels here and there? He's pointing forward to his resurrection power and his ministry as a great high priest. What does this point us to? It points us to the fact that God's kingdom will be free from all illness and all death. As I told you, Genesis 3.15 promises that all the effects of sin from the curse will be removed and those effects are many. Strife that is caused by sin in marriage. A ground that does not produce as we wish it would. Death itself, disease. And these resurrection pictures, oh, how many times we wish as Christians that this healing power would be applied in the here and now. Are you, are you with me on that? You know, I, I hear like what you're saying, Brother Jerry, and I think, man, this is like the sixth guy in our church to have cancer in the last year, I think, sixth person. But all of this points us to the fact that we, we, number one, we believe God can heal serious or more treatable illnesses now. But all of these healing miracles are giving us a picture of a heavenly kingdom that is free from all of those problems. That when the second resurrection happens, when Jesus returns, that that will be the definitive end of the curse of sin. That illness and death and all of that will be stopped once and forever. And it'll point us to the reality of the new heaven and the new earth in a sense of which as a Christian, life has already begun. Because we do not die. We simply pass from this life to the next. And it reminds us that in that new heaven and new earth, this is the reality. This is the resurrection promise as the curse is removed. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Come on, Christians, let's rejoice in that this morning. Hallelujah. Where do we see the resurrection? Last one, 
is that the third day imagery of many Old Testament stories point us to the resurrection of Christ. Search your Bible app and see how often this phrase, the third day, shows up, not in the New Testament when Jesus talked about his resurrection, but in the Old Testament. And how often it's associated in pointing forward to Christ based on its surrounding context. I wrote down like seven, but there's like a lot more. Genesis 1.13 says that it was on the third day that life began on the earth. Genesis 22.4 says that it was on the third day that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice and that Isaac's life was not over. Exodus 19.11 says that it was on the third day that God came down on Mount Sinai to meet his people. The law tells us that when sacrifices of purification were needed to cleanse people from their uncleanness, that all of those sacrifices happened on the third day. Jonah 1.17 tells us that Jonah was delivered from death, from the belly of the whale on the third day. Ezra 6.15 tells us that the second temple was finished on the third day. And all these point forward to Jesus promising that he would rise on the third day. Somewhere around 20 times in the gospels, probably more because he varies the wording and I don't have time to search all the different wordings, but at least 20 times. Jesus promises that he himself would rise on the third day. Oh man, our Bibles are packed with resurrection hope. It it, it shouldn't surprise us that the cornerstone of our faith, the resurrection, shows up all throughout the Old Testament. But what I want you to know more than anything this morning is that as you read those stories, as you see resurrection, Old Testament or new, it matters to your daily life. It reminds you that our God is a God whose plans only include possibilities, that there is nothing that he cannot do. It reminds us that in God's kingdom, all sickness and all illness will be cured. It reminds us that the resurrection initiates our rescue from our true enemies. It reminds us that the resurrection is the greatest pointer to the fact that we will receive everything God has promised. And so if God seems like he's letting you down now, just wait for resurrection. He will be faithful in the end. And it is that resurrection, which is why as Christians, we gather even here today. And so let us, as we praise him this morning, as we pray, as we hear his word, remember what the psalmist said, let us come before his presence with singing and into his courts with praise because we serve the God who defined by the act of Jesus Christ rising from the dead has proven that he is truly the God who kills and makes alive and we can have that hope as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Help us to celebrate and praise you in response to that today. In Jesus' name, amen.